Harry Houdini was born a Hungarian Jewish child named Eric Ice. His father actually served as a rabbi. His parents moved he and his siblings to the United States where over time he changed his name and became known as an illusionist, a stunt performer, and an amazing escape artist. He first attracted attention in vaudeville where he came to be called Harry Handcuff Houdini because he challenged police departments to keep him locked in handcuffs and no one could. Soon he extended his repertoire to include escaping from chains and ropes as he was tied and hung from skyscrapers. He escaped from straitjackets underwater, riveted boilers, heavy canvas bags, a sealed milk can full of water as he held his breath the entire time. He was buried alive and escaped, and he even freed himself after being locked in a high-security prison. Before his unexpected and most unusual death on October 24, 1926, Houdini had told his wife Bess that if it were possible, he intended to escape from death. And if he succeeded, then he promised to make contact with her. He could be certain, she could be certain, it was him if he communicated the message, Rosabella Believe. Rosabella was their favorite song. And so both of them agreed to use that word as a secret code. Bess then conducted seances unsuccessfully on Halloween night for the next decade after his death. Then in 1936, after the final unsuccessful attempt to contact Harry, at a seance held on the roof of the Knickerbocker Hotel, she put out the candle that had been burning beside a photograph of Houdini ever since his death. The picture to the right is the roof of that hotel. You can see those that are there for that seance. And over that short wall, you can see the lights from the city around them. Bess put out that candle and said, Houdini did not come through. My hope is gone. I do not believe that Houdini can come back to me or to anyone. The Houdini shrine has burned for 10 years. I now reverently turn out the light. It is finished. Good night, Harry. The greatest escape artist from all time wasn't able to escape death. But there's someone else who has, and his name is Jesus. In Hebrew, Yeshua. Harry Houdini died. He's buried in a Jewish cemetery in Queens, New York, and he's still dead. Jesus the Christ also died, but he's now alive because he was resurrected from the dead. Our entire existence, both now and forever, is predicated on the reality of Christ's resurrection. If the word resurrection is unfamiliar, imagine attending a funeral service, and all of a sudden, the lid to the casket opens up from the inside. The deceased person sits up and then climbs out of the casket. That would be freaky, but that's a resurrection. Someone that is dead is made alive. If Jesus did not experience a literal bodily resurrection from the dead, then he was a complete fraud and Christianity is meaningless. Paul commented on the importance of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Notice verse 12. Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, and that is our message, we preach that Jesus 
has risen. The Christian gospel is the exciting announcement that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried, and then he was resurrected from the dead. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Just as the Jewish social religious sect called the Sadducees had earlier done, some ancient non-Jewish Gentile Corinthians had adopted that same position as the Sadducees, that there is no resurrection. The argument was that our dead bodies just deteriorate and decompose in the grave, and that's the end. And that is the basic atheistic position now. Paul then tabulates the logical consequences of rejecting the idea of resurrection. Verse 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. The first logical consequence of if there's no resurrection is that Jesus Christ is still dead. Some time ago, an unsubstantiated rumor was circulating that Jesus' skeletal remains had been unearthed in an Israeli tomb found behind a hardware store. No, there are no skeletal remains from Jesus. He is alive. Verse 14, And if Christ is not risen then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Notice some more logical consequences if there's no resurrection and Jesus is still dead and decomposed. Then preaching Jesus, if that is the case, preaching Jesus is empty. That means our preaching is useless and a total waste of time. And so is our so-called Christian faith. Verse 15, Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he has raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. Another logical consequence of this lie, if we preach Jesus' resurrection, and then it's determined that he wasn't resurrected because there is no resurrection, then we're false and fraudulent witnesses, because we have been telling people he has risen. That means we're liars and not true representatives from God. Verse 16, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Verse 17, And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. The ultimate logical conclusion of no resurrection is that our faith in a dead Jesus is pointless, unprofitable, and pathetic. And we're still in our sins, and we're unforgiven. Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead is a non-negotiable teaching. If Jesus' resurrection, think through this, was something historical and actual and factual, then we're forced to accept all that Jesus said and did. If though Jesus' resurrection was something fictional and fraudulent, then what Jesus said and did doesn't matter. We can just ignore him. Someone has suggested there are different possible reactions to the resurrection. First, there's the reaction called rationalism. Rationalism. According to rationalism, the resurrection must be rejected on the basis that it cannot fit into human reason. Rationalism rejects all that is miraculous. This is the basic humanistic perspective because it argues that only that which man can perceive and explain can therefore be true. The resurrection is inexplicable. 
according to human reason, so it couldn't have happened. A second reaction is called unbelief. I might add this is a determined, stubborn unbelief. This unbelief doesn't use reason so much to reject the resurrection. It just refuses to believe the evidence. It denies the facts. A third reaction is the reaction called doubt. Doubt. This reaction questions the resurrection. Doubt exists in two distinct categories. There is sincere doubt. Sincere doubt uh, that we can and should appreciate. That's someone that is searching and just wanting to have legitimate questions answered. And that's permissible. Then there's hypocritical doubt, meaning someone that continues to question Christianity long after being presented more than enough evidence to believe. A fourth reaction is called indifference. Indifference. This reaction isn't interested if the resurrection happened or didn't happen because this person doesn't care. He's not interested. It doesn't matter to him. I heard popular apologist Dr. Sean McDowell interview a lesbian that said as much. She said she didn't care if Jesus was alive or dead. His resurrection meant nothing to her, she said. Another reaction is called a spirit resurrection. A spirit resurrection. This is the position of some cults. That there was a resurrection, but not in an actual, literal, bodily sense. An example of that, Jehovah Witnesses teach Jesus was resurrected, but resurrected in a spirit form. That's problematic because the New Testament records at least ten times where Jesus presented himself to people after his resurrection in a tangible and material body. Jehovah Witnesses argue that it's true that Jesus did sometimes, sometimes materialize into a post resurrection human body, but that he was essentially still nothing more than a spirit creature. If that were the case, then Jesus deliberately deceived his disciples and deceived others into believing he had an actual resurrected body, meaning that Jesus lied to them and Jesus lied to us. We're going to see this morning that wasn't the case. Another reaction is called a hostility reaction. Hostility reaction. This is more than rationalism, more than determined and stubborn unbelief, more than doubt, more than indifference. This is serious anger. This is a hostile, vocal, vociferous effort to discredit the resurrection. The infamous atheist Richard Dawkins, now age 80, is a mean and nasty person and is angered at all things Christianity. He has made these blasphemous statements. He has said, quote, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the rising of Lazarus, even the Old Testament miracles are all freely used as religious propaganda. And they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. Count me as an unsophisticate. Second, he said, presumably what happened to Jesus was what happens to all of us when we die. We decompose. He continued, accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ascension are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. I sensed some degree of anger and hostility in those statements, didn't you? This morning we're going to investigate a biblical reaction to 
this resurrection that consisted of sincere doubt. This reaction was about someone that had sincere doubts. The atheist turned into Christian apologist and famous novelist C.S. Lewis once said, Now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks terribly, looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. That second set of moods increased until C.S. Lewis committed himself to Jesus Christ. So doubts, his doubts, actually contributed to his ultimate conversion. First, let's define doubt. Most people have the impression doubt is the opposite of faith. It is not. The exact opposite of faith is non-faith. The opposite of faith uh, uh, is unbelief, and that's an important distinction to understand. Notice, Os Guinness said this, Doubt comes from a word meaning two. Two. To believe is to be in one mind about accepting something as true, and to disbelieve is to be in one mind about rejecting something as not being true. But to doubt is to waver between those two positions. Doubt is to believe and to disbelieve all at once. And so to be in two minds. That describes the man that is mentioned in this text. Notice John 20 verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, that is Sunday, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Notice the disciples have met together in secret because there's this concern that those religious authorities would find them and question them about this missing Messiah person. Verse 20, when he, this is Jesus, he has been resurrected. Jesus had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Remember as Jesus hung on the cross, in order to determine if Jesus were actually dead, one of the legionnaires, Roman soldiers, thrust his spear up into Jesus' side. It was a post-mortem conclusion that Jesus was dead because out poured a mixture of blood and water, and that was evidence that his heart muscle had literally exploded inside his chest. He was dead. So Jesus showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. That's an understatement. Verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Verse 24, now Thomas called the twin. Thomas was one of the twelve original disciples, and he was a twin. Was he an identical twin or a fraternal twin? We don't know because Thomas's twin is never mentioned or identified in Scripture. It's interesting that in modern times, there were other famous twins who have an almost unknown twin brother or sister. Elvis Presley had an identical twin brother named Jesse, stillborn just 35 minutes before Elvis's birth. Mario Andretti, famous race car driver, had a twin brother named Aldo. Mark Sinclair Vincent, better known as Van Diesel, actor, director, movie producer, has a twin brother named Paul. It's interesting that in the case 
of some twins, one of them becomes a household name, and the other one is almost a complete unknown. That was Thomas, and he's unidentified, an unmentioned twin brother or sister. Verse 24 continues. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not, not with them when Jesus came. Jesus came to see his disciples after his resurrection. And Thomas wasn't there in that room at that time that Jesus came. And no one knows why he wasn't there. We do know that Thomas was a pessimist. Thomas has most often been called Doubting Thomas. And he did have some serious doubt, as we're going to see. But that was probably because of pessimism on his part. Thomas was a negative person. Um, He would see the glass half empty. Uh, He had a bent toward being anxious and melancholy and sometimes anticipated the worst in situations. Pessimism can be defined as a state of mind where someone perceives life from a negative perspective. It's this inclination to see only the negative or worst part of things and to expect misfortune and bad things to happen. One example of a pessimist was a beginning paratrooper who was just learning to jump. He was given these instructions. First, jump when you are told to jump. Second, count to 10 and then pull the ripcord. Third, in the unlikely event the chute doesn't open, pull the second cord to the emergency chute. And fourth, after you land, a truck will take you back to the base. The plane reached the appropriate altitude, the men started jumping, And this particular paratrooper jumped when he was told to. He counted to 10 as he was told to. He pulled the cord and nothing happened. The chute didn't open. He proceeded to the backup plan and as he had been told to. And to his shock, the emergency chute also didn't open. It was at that point he started complaining to himself. That's just great. Now I suppose after I get down, the truck won't be there either. (laughs) I guess some people might consider that pessimism. We learn something about Thomas's pessimism and negatively earlier on in John 11, where Jesus announced to his disciples he had intended to return to Jerusalem, where the Jewish authorities had earlier tried to assassinate him. Jesus had received word uh, that his friend Lazarus was extremely ill, near death. Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, had sent someone to tell Jesus about Lazarus' serious condition and begged him to come to Bethany and heal his friend. The problem was that Bethany was located on the outskirts of Jerusalem. That meant Jesus' friends were, in essence, inviting him to return to the same hazardous region he had just escaped from. The Jewish religious authorities were determined to seize him and put him to death. So this was essentially an extremely dangerous request. Thomas heard about Jesus' intentions, and he was confused. He didn't understand why Jesus would return to such a dangerous situation. Thomas was so pessimistic that he became a fatalist. He could see nothing but disaster ahead. He was convinced a return to Jerusalem was a certain death sentence. According to Thomas's prognosis, there was a 100% chance Jesus would be stoned there. But notice something. 
Thomas was still committed to Jesus. So much so, notice what he said to the other disciples. John 11 and verse 16. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go. Let us also go. And the reason Thomas felt all of them should also go to that Jerusalem suburb was, notice, that we may die with him. In Thomas's fatalistic mind, to return to Jerusalem meant Jesus was a dead man. So Thomas felt that if Jesus was so determined to go there, regardless of the danger, then out of commitment to Jesus, out of solidarity with Jesus, he and the other disciples should join him on this perceived suicide mission and become Christian martyrs. So that was courageous and heroic pessimism. It was most fortunate that didn't happen. Jesus and his disciples did go. Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the dead. Those men did return to Jerusalem, and none of them died at that time. Thomas did have definite pessimistic tendencies, and that contributed to his doubts. His principal doubt, and the one he's most infamous for, was he doubted Jesus' resurrection. He doubted Jesus' resurrection, John 20, verse 25. The other disciples therefore said to him, said to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, this is his response, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas had this pessimistic attitude that he had to see something before he could believe it. He had to see it before he could believe it. Instead of believing, Thomas doubted. Notice the definition, to believe and believing and exercising faith are in some sense synonymous. To believe means to exercise confidence in something we accept as being true, but sometimes something we cannot necessarily conclusively prove to be true. One more time, to believe means to exercise confidence in something we accept as being true, but sometimes something we cannot necessarily conclusively prove to be true. Thomas doubted that those other disciples had actually seen Jesus. He probably assumed it was some form of an apparition. An apparition is a ghost-like image of someone. Even though Jesus had earlier predicted both his death and resurrection, the disciples weren't convinced to be fair to Thomas. The other disciples had been no better than him because those men had also scoffed at the initial reports of the resurrection. And those men also didn't believe the biblical statements Jesus made that predicted the resurrection. Thomas's doubt was probably no greater than the others. But for some unknown reason, he has received the most attention. Verse 26 and after eight days, his disciples were again inside. And notice, this time, Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Jesus said, Peace to you three times in this text we're reading. This is interesting. Jesus had been resurrected and made alive from the dead. He was still in that resurrected form. 
He had a literal, recognizable, tangible, material, bodily form that resembled his pre-crucifixion bodily form. He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't a phantom. He wasn't a ghost. He had a resurrected bodily form. But notice this verse implies that the disciples, including Thomas, were together in this room. Remember, the disciples were still meeting in secret, so the doors to that room were shut and probably locked. And then in a sudden instant, Jesus was there in the middle of that room. No one opened the door to invite him in. Get this. What happened was Jesus' actual material self passed through that actual solid, tangible material door without leaving a hole and into that room. It happened so fast, no one was aware it happened until it happened. To me, that's pretty cool. Jesus' first words to them were, peace to you. That's because all of them were probably terrified he was there. Since the nanosecond before that, he wasn't there. And none of them expected him to be there. And there he was. I might add a nanosecond is one billionth of a second. He was probably faster than that. Jesus immediately, once in the room, singled out Thomas. Because as God, he was aware of Thomas's doubtfulness. And notice Jesus didn't get on to Thomas because he'd been hesitant and doubtful about his resurrection. Jesus didn't scold him. Jesus didn't admonish him. Jesus didn't say, what's wrong with you, Thomas? No, Jesus was understanding and patient because he doesn't blame someone for wanting to be sure. I believe we should all want to be sure. Verse 27, then he, Jesus, said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus was aware of the evidence that Thomas earlier had said he required in order to believe. Remember, he said, I have to see it before I believe it. So Jesus extended to Thomas that proof. He gave Thomas permission to touch him, to touch his hands, and to touch his side. Listen to this trivia. There is just one man-made thing in heaven. There is just one man-made thing in heaven, and that is the scars man made on Jesus at his crucifixion. I want us to do an exercise. Take the middle finger of your right hand and place it in the middle of the palm on your left hand. Then take the middle finger of your left hand and place it in the center of the palm on the right hand. Do this. According to American Sign Language, that is the sign of Jesus. Now you know one word in sign language, Jesus. But did you get the connection between Jesus' nail prints in his hand? But Thomas didn't need to actually touch his crucifixion scars. Just seeing Jesus was evidence enough. And in verse 28, we're going to read the confession Thomas immediately made about him. Jesus offered to Thomas the empirical evidence that he had earlier claimed he needed to believe that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. Thomas was now an actual eyewitness to the resurrection. Atheist Bertrand Russell 
defined faith as believing in something for which there is no evidence. No, that's actually not faith. That's foolishness. There is evidence, ample evidence. Thomas had enough evidence to exercise faith in the resurrected Jesus. And although all the eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection have been dead for centuries, the actual and accurate records from those eyewitnesses still exist as part of the New Testament, so we do have enough evidence to believe in Jesus' resurrection. At the beginning of this message, we mentioned six common reactions to the resurrection. Rationalism, determined unbelief, doubt, indifference, spirit resurrection, and hostility. Did you notice we left an earlier blank on the note sheet? Because there's one more possible reaction to the resurrection, and that's the reaction to believe. Believe. That is the correct reaction, and that was Thomas's reaction. Verse 28, And Thomas answered and said to him, Jesus, My Lord, Lord is translated from the Greek word kurios. Kurios means master, ruler. My Lord and my God. Non-Christian cults categorically reject Jesus' claim to be God. As an example, Jehovah Witnesses spin this statement from Jesus, I mean from Thomas, and argue that this wasn't an actual confession from Thomas that Jesus was God, but instead this was a statement of complete shock and surprise. According to them, Thomas sounded like this after seeing Jesus, oh my Lord, oh my God. No. That response would have been disrespectful and almost blasphemous, and Jesus would have chastened him for that. Thomas specifically identified Jesus as being God, and if he wasn't God, then Jesus would have rejected that confession. But notice Jesus didn't correct Thomas. Instead, he commended him for making that confession. Notice Thomas confessed that Jesus was God, but he did more than that. In calling Jesus his Lord and master and ruler, he was recommitting himself to Jesus. Considering some modern skeptical men that have made that same confession Thomas made, Simon Greenleaf was an American, famous American attorney. In 1833, Dr. Greenleaf was named to the royal professorship at Harvard University, and in 1846 became Dane Professor of Law at Harvard. Dr. Greenleaf contributed extensively to the development of Harvard Law School. He had an amazing legal mind. He authored a famous legal volume entitled A Treatise on the Law of Evidence, considered to be the greatest legal volume ever published. It remained a standard textbook in American law throughout the 19th century. Simon Greenleaf was a strong critic of Christian teaching. And in particular, he questioned Jesus' resurrection. He was then challenged to investigate the evidence for the resurrection. And after doing that, he became a committed Christian. He produced his findings and conclusions in his book, The Testimony of the Evangelist. The evangelists were those authors of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Testimony of the Evangelist, examined by the rules of evidence, administered in the courts of justice. From that book, Greenleaf contributed to the development and practice 
of a Christian school of thought known as legal or juridical apologetics that happens as legally trained scholars appropriate the canons of proof and argument to the defense of Christian belief. Simon Greenleaf had a pessimistic, negative, and skeptical opinion about Jesus, but he investigated the evidence from a legal perspective and became convinced that Jesus demonstrated through his resurrection that he was and is God and the Savior of humanity. Charles Colson should sound familiar. He was an attorney, a political advisor, who served as special counsel to President Nixon. He was known as Nixon's hatchet man. He was named as one of Watergate's seven, infamous seven, and he was the first one to be incarcerated in a federal prison on Watergate-related charges. About that time, a business executive friend of his gave him C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, phenomenal book. Charles Colson read that book and became an extraordinary evangelical Christian. His resume as a Christian is extremely impressive. Mr. Colson said he knew the resurrection was a historical fact and that the Watergate scandal proved that to him. Sounds interesting. I'll paraphrase his argument. He said the disciples testified to having seen Jesus raised from the dead. Those men then preached that resurrection truth for decades and never once denied it. Those men were beaten, tortured, imprisoned, stoned, and martyred and could never have endured that if that resurrection claim wasn't true. The Watergate scandal included some of the most powerful men in the world and those men couldn't keep a lie Secret for three weeks. Colson concluded, Am I to believe those disciples could keep a lie for decades and then die for what those men knew to be alive? Mr. Colson concluded, That's impossible. And it is. Josh McDowell has lectured on more college campuses than anyone in history. He has lectured on six continents and made more than 27,000 presentations to more than 25 million people. He has authored or co-authored 151 books at last count. Some of those books have been translated into 128 languages. After one of his lectures on a campus, a university said to Mr. McDowell, so what was it that convinced you to become a Christian? Josh said, because I couldn't explain away the resurrection and neither can I remember this Jesus death proved he was fully man Jesus resurrection proved he was fully God verse 29 Jesus said to him Thomas because you have seen me you have believed remember Thomas said unless I see him I see the scars in his hands and his side I won't believe he has seen Jesus now, and he has believed, and that's fantastic. But notice, blessed are those who have not seen, meaning blessed are those who have not seen the resurrected Jesus. That's us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas had earlier convinced himself that he had to see actual forensic scientific evidence of the resurrection before he could believe it. We are some 20 centuries removed 
from the time of this text. So none of us have had that unique advantage of being in that same room Thomas was. But we do have Thomas's experience recorded in Scripture. And after comparing that account to all other resurrection-related biblical accounts, we actually have enough circumstantial evidence to believe the resurrection without actually seeing Jesus as Thomas did. And we are blessed because we didn't need to see it first before we believed. None of us have seen Jesus, but we do know with a high degree of certainty what happened on that Sunday morning. As the country preacher from down south said, Jesus done, got up, went, and gone. That's what happened. Listen to me this morning. He is risen. A little slow, but it's okay. <laughs> Thomas was ultimately convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He was first a member of the triune Godhead, meaning he was eternal. Then he was born from a virgin maiden to also become human. And then as the God-man, as God in human form, he spent his entire life on earth and never committed a single sin. He was sinless so that he qualified to die on a cross as the substitute for the sins of mankind. He died a cruel, brutal, and bloody death. He was buried. And then unlike Houdini, he literally cheated on death and was resurrected from the grave. And being convinced of that changed Thomas forever. It's interesting that the Gospels never mention Thomas's pessimism after that confession he made about Jesus. After witnessing Jesus in his post-resurrected form, Thomas discarded some of his pessimistic negative tendencies, and he became an evangelist. Some historicals suggest Thomas carried the gospel as far as India. There is a small hill there today, close to the airport in Chennai, India, where Thomas is actually thought to be buried. There are churches in southern India whose roots are said to be traceable to the beginning of the church age, and to the apostle Thomas in particular. Tradition states that Thomas was martyred through being run through with a spear. But all that wouldn't have happened if Thomas hadn't been convinced of the resurrection. Notice this truism. Please don't miss this. God gives us enough evidence to believe, but he doesn't give us so much evidence that it eliminates faith. God gives us enough evidence to believe, but he doesn't give us so much evidence that it eliminates faith. Hebrews 11, verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. God requires from us an element of faith. We can spend months and months and thousands of hours doing extensive research, investigating Christianity, but we can never answer all the questions there are. And we can never eliminate all possible doubts there are. So at some point, we must conclude that we have seen enough convincing evidence for Christianity's claims. And it is now time to make a definite decision and believe and receive Jesus for ourselves. On an October Sunday night, in the front room of our house at 7735 Jefferson Street in Kansas City. I made that decision as a child still in grade school. I believed Jesus was who he claimed to be. 
I believe Jesus did what he claimed he did. He died for me. He was buried, and then he was resurrected from the dead. And that night, that night, I remember it as if it were yesterday, I believed on Jesus. It was first an intellectual confession about Jesus, as was Thomas's, but it was so much more than that. From my heart, that night, I made a volitional, willful commitment to Jesus Christ. That night, I trusted Him as my Savior and forgiver, and He became the Lord and Master of me. And that's never changed. And because I still have Him, and He still has me, I am at this moment as sure of heaven as if I were already there. There's a legend about an old man lost in the desert. He was literally dying of thirst. He stumbled on until he came to an abandoned house. Outside the dilapidated, windowless, weather-beaten, deserted shack was a pump. There was an actual pump in the ground. He stumbled forward, grabbed the handle, and started pumping furiously. But no water came from the well. Then he noticed a small jug with a cork at the top and a note written on the outside. That note said, You have to prime the pump with water first, my friend. The heat from the desert has dried the pump's internal parts. And so the pump has to be primed. P.S. And please fill the jug again before you leave. This man proceeded to pull out the cork and saw that the jug was actually full of water. He now had a serious, serious dilemma. Should he pour that water down the pump, as the instructions said to do? But if he did, what if that didn't work? If it didn't work, then all the water would be gone. And he would probably die. If he drank all the water from the jug, ignored the instructions, then at least temporarily he wouldn't die from thirst, but he had no idea when or where he would find water another time. But to pour that jug of water down the rusty pump on the flimsy instructions written on the outside of the jug seemed to be a huge risk. But something inside him told him to follow the advice and choose the risky decision so he proceeded to pour the entire jug of water down the rusty old pump and then he furiously pumped up and down, up and down and sure enough, the water started to gush out and he had all he needed to drink. So he filled the jug with water again, he corked it and added his own words beneath the instructions on the jug. He wrote, believe me, it really works. To believe or not to believe, that is the question. And that's the question we must each answer because both our here and now and our forever is contingent on our answer. I want us to bow our heads. Would we bow our heads quietly? Before I pray, I'm curious who God has spoken to this morning. You're not certain of your spiritual status you don't know for certain that you have received Jesus, that you have believed on his death, burial, and resurrection, and you have invited him into your life, and he is your savior and forgiver, and he is your Lord and master and leader. 
You're not sure if that has happened. You have doubts. You have questions. Maybe questions about all of this. But God is speaking to your heart and you sincerely, sincerely want to know more. You are considering becoming a Christian. In the back of the chair in front of you, there's a small card. If that is you, please take that card out. And notice it reads, I just listened to the Easter message. To believe or not to believe, that is the question. I now understand the absolute importance of believing on Jesus and receiving him into my life. I am anxious to know more, and I wish to have Pastor Larry contact me about making that life-changing decision. And then please sign your name, print it so it's legible, and also fill in the email and phone, and give it to me after the service. I would be excited to receive it or put it in the box on the wall. But please, please don't procrastinate. If you'll give me that card, we will soon sit down together and I can show you from the Bible how you can have Jesus for yourself. I promise you'll never regret that decision. Father in heaven, uh, you've heard this message. I've done my best to communicate the gospel, the fact Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and then resurrected from the dead. And I pray, dear God, if there is anyone in this room who has not believed on that gospel and received Jesus for themselves, I pray, dear God, they will fill out that card and give it to me so we can soon, very, very soon, sit down together and they can decide for Jesus themselves. God, please, I don't want anyone in this room to miss heaven. So I pray your Holy Spirit would do his work on the hearts of those who need him today. Thank you for your goodness and for your son, for his sacrifice and for his resurrection, for the fact he is alive in heaven and still he can live in our hearts. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.